Our sermon text and epistle lesson is from Romans chapter 5. Again, submit yourself to God's word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Thus far, the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, that you work through, even through our trials to produce in us hope. We thank you that you have given us peace with you and even access to you, to your throne, to the Holy of Holies, to your royal court. And so we pray that as we consider these these marvelous truths, that you will encourage us, that you will increase our faith and our gratitude and our commitment to repentance and obedience as citizens in your kingdom. We ask for you to accomplish this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Does being declared righteous before God make any difference in your life today, right now, this week? Paul spent four chapters in the book of Romans talking about our righteous standing in God's heavenly courtroom. But does the doctrine of justification by faith have anything to do with what's going on here in the earthly realm where we live? Is there any significance to the afflictions, to the suffering that we endure? Does God's declaration of my righteousness make any difference in this painful life, often painful life, that I live in this groaning creation? Well, Paul says it makes every difference. The results of receiving God's righteousness, which is what we call in one word justification, the results of this reception of God's own righteousness have to do not only with what happens when we die, but also with how we behave and even how we feel in this life. A righteousness before God makes all the difference in this world as well as in the world to come. It makes every difference both in good times but surprisingly and wonderfully, in bad times as well. Having laid the foundation of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul now turns to the present results, the present benefits of having the righteousness of God credited to your spiritual account in the courtroom of God. 
Therefore, Paul says in verse 1, since we have been declared righteous by faith. In other words, in light of all that we've considered about God's grace to us in the cross and making us right with him. And then Paul launches into three specific blessings that every Christian possesses. Three truths, three realities true of all believers. In verse 1, he says, we have peace with God. Verse 2, we have access to God. And then the rest of the paragraph explains what it means that we have the hope of glory. The blessed hope, as it's often called. Let's think about each one of these three results of justification by faith. Let's explore the significance of our groaning life in a groaning creation in light of this wonderful doctrine. First, in verse 1, since we have been declared righteous by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just stop and think, is there anything more important? Can you think of anything more important than being at peace with your eternal creator, the sovereign of heaven and earth? Anything more important than that? Anything come to mind? There, There isn't because being at peace with God means living with him now and forevermore, world without end. And being at war with God means living apart from him now and forever. Hell without end. Every human being falls into one of those two categories, ultimately. Either you're at peace with God or you're still at war with God. Every human. Many who are at war with God think they're at peace with God. It's difficult to find unbelievers who know and admit, yes, I am at war with God. Oprah Winfrey, who at one time was said to be to have more cultural and religious influence in America, maybe even in the West, than anyone except maybe the Pope. Oprah says that we all have a God force because we're all spirits that come from the greatest spirit, kind of chips off the old block. And this represents more or less, this kind of new age type thinking, represents more or less the prevailing theology of our day to to one extent or another. We're, We're born at peace with the great spirit. We're born with a God force. But the Bible teaches that we're born at war with God and that God's wrath rests on us until We are united to Christ by faith. We're only at peace with God if he has declared us to be righteous before him through the propitiating blood of the cross. When Paul calls the death of Christ a propitiation in his blood back in chapter 3, he means that the crucifixion of Jesus turned aside God's wrath that was toward us. His death on the cross satisfied God's wrath against you. If you are in Christ, that's what propitiation refers to, the the appeasement of God's righteous anger and wrath towards sinners. So when Paul says we have peace with God, he assumes there wasn't always peace between 
us in God. He assumes that peace with God doesn't come naturally by birth, by virtue of being a human and having some kind of God force. We were once children of wrath. The hostilities between you and God continued until he reconciled you to himself in Christ through his son. Later in chapter 5, Paul expands on how God ended hostilities, we could call it. He ended hostilities with us in Christ. Look down at, if you have your Bibles open to Romans 5, look down at verses 9 and 10. Much more than, Paul says, having now been justified by his blood, that propitiating blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now we need to be clear at this point which kind of peace Paul is not talking about. He's not referring to the peace of God, the peace that surpasses all understanding. As Paul says in Philippians 4, the peace that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God, which is a, we we could call it a calm, content, restful, peaceful heart in the midst of life's pressures and, and afflictions. The peace of God is a peacefulness of heart and mind that remains unshaken when the troubles of this world overwhelm us. The peace of God is a personal, subjective experience that is available to everyone who has objective peace with God. So there's of God and with God. And here in Romans 5, Paul refers specifically to that objective, foundational peace with God through the blood of Christ. If you don't have peace with God through the propitiating blood of Jesus, you have no access to the peace of God. You can't get that. Apart from peace with God, your heart and mind cannot ever be guarded by the peace of God, as Paul says in Philippians 4. That's what we want, but we can't have it apart from peace with God. So sinful humans, including Christians, tend to think about peace with God in one of two ways. First, there's the unbeliever who is objectively at war with God, but believes he has that God force and assumes he's at peace with the great spirit. You might even have bumper stickers or something like that to express it. And then there's the believer who is objectively at peace with God, but he lacks certainty and still tends to view himself as God's enemy. Unbelievers who think they're good with God are like the woman whose doctor has told her that she's got malignant cancer that will kill her if she doesn't seek drastic treatment. But she refuses to believe this bad news because she feels just fine. She feels as healthy as ever. There's no chance of her being cured until she accepts the bad news. The good news of Christ's propitiating death can only make peace between you and God if you first accept the bad news of your natural enmity with God. That you are his sworn enemy first by nature. On the other hand, believers who think 
God's still angry with them are like a, a different woman who went to the doctor knowing that, just knowing that she had terminal cancer. And so she refused to believe the doctor when he assured her that she's perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with you. Stop believing you're about to die. And this is where many Christians live, including some of you in this sanctuary. You feel God's rejection rather than his acceptance. Now, you know in your head the right answers, and, and you can uh, confess the truth, but you feel God's displeasure rather than his embrace because your sins are so great. You sense God's condemnation rather than his favor. This, is, this especially may be true if, if your sins have wreaked havoc not just, not, not only on your life, but also in the lives of others. But fellow Christian, this verse says that you have peace with God whether you feel it or not. Your reconciliation with God has nothing to do with your subjective feelings. No matter how much an unbeliever thinks she's good with God, the objective reality that she's under the wrath of God remains. And a similar truth applies to Christians, except the other way. No matter how much you as a believer think God's not good with you, the objective reality that you're under the wrath-absorbing blood of Christ remains. In Christ, you're good with God, and God is good with you, apart from anything you've done. You're, you're no longer enemies but friends, and you can rest easy. The war is over. If you're a believer who struggles with the assurance of God's love and acceptance, you need to, to confront, attack your feelings with God's word. You need to engage in the theological argument with your unbiblical thoughts. You must take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ and his word. If God's word says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you are in Christ Jesus, then stand on the immovable fixed promise of God and refuse to take counsel from your fluctuating feelings. Second, we have access to grace. Verse 2 says, through whom, that is through our Lord Jesus Christ, from verse 1, we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace in which we stand, this refers, you know, this grace that he's talking about in verse 1, is the grace of being declared righteous in Christ. It's the grace of the gospel, the grace of God in Christ. The word for access here has the sense of being brought near to something or someone. Someone or something you wouldn't normally have access to. That's the idea. You have to be brought near to this and given access to it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, for through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. And then in the next chapter, Ephesians 3, in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The only way any of us commoners would ever be able to develop a personal relationship 
say, with the President of the United States or the King of England, is if someone who knew the President or the King were to somehow give us access to that dignitary and, and make a way for us to draw near and to become friends with him. That's not going to happen apart from that for, for us, for us commoners, right? Your access to grace is much better than that access would be if it were granted to you with the king or the president. Your access to grace is much better. Christ has given you access to God, the God, the one true and living God. He's ushered you into the presence of his majesty so that you can now develop a personal relationship with God himself, the king of heaven and earth, the divine dignitary. Wherever you go in the world, you're always in the holy of holies with God. You have far greater access than the high priest did in the old covenant. You always have access to his throne of grace, and you can always approach God there and find grace to help in your time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. Access to God and his grace, you see, goes beyond peace with God. Peace of God is foundational. Not only has God ended hostilities between you and him, but he's also established a personal friendship with you, with you, with you. You can now go to God continually with your petitions and your problems, with your failures and your feelings. And every time, you will find grace to help in your time of need. Fellow believers, are you taking, are you taking advantage of your access to God and his grace. You have the most amazing resource at your disposal 24 hours a day. How often do you run to it? There's no need that goes unmet in God's throne room. You always find help in your time of need help that addresses that need where do you run to help for help instead wherever you go whether it's friends or the wisdom of the internet or entertainment or booze or work or porn or recreation or theology or social interaction or shopping or planning for your future you will never find grace for help in your time of need anywhere on earth Help is only found at the throne of grace to which you have been given access. 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 This is greater than we can imagine. Third, in verse 2, we have the hope of glory. These are just giant explosions. Every statement is a giant theological and practical explosion. Fireworks. We have the hope of glory. Verse 2. 
continues, and we boast or we glory, we praise. Lots of different ways to translate that word. We rejoice. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. The hope of glory is your confident anticipation of one day sharing in God's glory, the glory of God that he gives. The, the glory of God in verse 2, uh, you know, when we think of the glory of God, we think of his glory that he possesses, right, that belongs to him. And that's, that's one aspect of the glory of God. But here, the glory of God in verse 2 refers to the glory that the New Testament talks about several times that comes from God, the glory that he shares with his people, that he gives to us. And our English word hope is too weak to convey what the scriptures mean on this front. In English, to hope can mean just wishing for something without any assurance that it's going to happen. You might, you might hope that you get that, the job that you applied for. Or my wife might hope that Jude will sleep through the night without waking up, in which case her hopes may well be dashed. But in the Bible, hope is a conviction, a scriptural certainty, a bedrock, a foundation that cannot be moved, not a mere wish. Christian hope is faith-filled confidence in the future glory that God plans to share with you. He's given us a, a small taste of it now in, in the new life, the new creation life that we have now in Christ. But the bulk of it awaits for glory, as Paul calls it. Paul says in Romans 8 that our hope is in the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. Our hope, Paul says in Romans 8.21, is that the creation itself will be set free, this creation that we live in, the one that's groaning, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is that glory of the children of God and the freedom of the glory of the children of God? This future glory includes our resurrection bodies and the new cre creation. Paul's hinting at it there when he talks about the glory of the children of God. That's us, the sons of God, in our glorious state in the new creation. And he makes this clear later. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, because we're still in this old creation, still in these mortal bodies, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's a physical thing. For in this hope, the hope of resurrection, new creation, in this hope, we were saved. No less than saved in that hope. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they, have already, what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. That's our hope. It's fitting that the hope of glory comes third in Romans 5, 1 to 5. It naturally flows out of the first two. The more you appreciate and enjoy the, your peace with God and the more you take advantage of your access to God, the more you will desire to see him face to face 
in glory. I want to say that again. The more you appreciate and enjoy your peace with God, and the more you take advantage of your access to God through prayer, through communion with God in his scriptures, walking with the Lord in righteousness and in holiness and faith and faithfulness, then the more you will desire to see him face to face on that day. And the more you'll be excited about the glory God's going to share with you and with you and with you in the world to come. And so what if you don't look forward to that glory? Some of you may not look forward to that. You you didn't even really, it's not even on your radar. If you don't look forward to that day when your faith will become sight and you will no longer see dimly as in a mirror, that day when you will be in the immediate presence of Jesus without any hindrances, with no sin, if you don't eagerly anticipate that hope of glory, the blessed hope of glory, it may be because you haven't experienced much of that intoxicating joy of being at the foot of God's throne of grace at peace with him. Perhaps you don't take advantage of your access to God. Perhaps you don't know what your peace with God means and implies about your relationship with him now. Once once you taste your access and discover the pleasure of having just a few drops of God's presence on your tongue, well, then you'll long for the day when you'll get to drink from the fountainhead and experience the fullness of joy forevermore. Is this what you long for and hope for more than anything else? Is it what you think about much? What what else do you long for more than the hope of glory? Perhaps that hope isn't even on your radar. If so, your spiritual affections are out of whack. You need to, to recalibrate your heart and set it on eternal rather than temporary things. Children, young people, are you excited about that hope of glory that I was just talking about? Do you think about it? Teenagers, what do you long for more than being with Jesus in glory? Parents, if I asked your children what you hope for and desire, long for, think about, what your heart is set on, most of all, what would they tell me? Would their answer have to do with some circumstance on earth? Or would they tell me about the reflection of the celestial city that they can see in your eyes? Paul wrote to Titus, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
In verses 3 to 5, Paul gives additional reasons why we have the hope of glory. In verses 3 and 4, it's because we know what afflictions produce. We know what God produces in us through our afflictions. And in verse 5, it's because the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts by God. Or, sorry, the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So God himself is pouring his love into our hearts. So those are additional reasons that we have the hope. Look at verses 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces steadfast endurance, and steadfast endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So he, he comes full circle, back to hope. Paul's aware that life in this groaning creation includes pain as well as spiritual pleasures. And yet Paul has figured out a way to boast or rejoice or glory in his afflictions and sufferings. And and he had many. More More than us. More than we do. And he still called them light afflictions. Paul doesn't say we boast or rejoice for our afflictions. That would kind of be twisted, right? Our troubles don't bring joy in themselves. They're not joyous in themselves. And yet, that's why they're called afflictions, suffering, trials. And yet, it's quite possible for the Christian to have joy in his troubles. God God doesn't like the pain and suffering that people endure. Lamentations 3.33 says God doesn't afflict or grieve the children of men from his heart. He doesn't enjoy doing it. He's not sadistic like that. In fact, he has in store for you a place where you will experience no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning or crying forever. That's the goal. That's what God wants. That's what he's accomplished for his people. Christians can glory in suffering not because we're, we're stoics who, who know how to grit our teeth and bear it. You know, sort of white knuckle it. But because we know that it benefits us spiritually. Because we have promises attached to those trials from the word of God. We look through our troubles to the hope of glory that waits for us on the other side of our troubled life. Life in this world will be full of troubles, Jesus said. In this world, you will have troubles. In this groaning creation, you will have troubles. We rest and rejoice in the knowledge that our afflictions only serve to increase the weight of that glory that God promises on the other side. The weight of glory, Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says that suffering triggers a, and for the believer, suffering triggers a chain reaction that ends in what? More hope. Deeper hope. Affliction produces steadfast endurance or perseverance. 
That, that word communicates the idea of living under a, a difficult circumstance without trying to squirm out from underneath it. It's the ability, ability to hang in there when the going gets tough rather than looking for the easy way out. This, this mental and spiritual fortitude separates mature Christians from immature ones. The, the experienced, mature Christian is steadfast and he endures because he regularly finds help at God's throne of grace. He stays at his post and he remains steady under fire, under heavy fire at times because he knows God and experiences his presence. Steadfast endurance then produces character, which means something like testedness. It takes time to, to build character, to cultivate character. The man or woman of character is the person who is tried and true. Their spiritual mettle has been proven through experience, especially, particularly, through difficult experiences. Character then produces more of that blessed hope, more hope of glory. Trials have a way of removing from our hearts rival sources of, of confidence and hope. And there are rival sources for, for our confidence and our hope. Our wayward hearts are always on the lookout for something here on earth, something temporary that will provide us the security we need, the, the sense down deep that our future is bright, that, it, that our future is going to be okay. We long for that security. But suffering has a way of driving us to the only place, I should say the only person, who can provide real certainty, real confidence, real hope that's immovable. Jonathan Chow was a missionary to China in the last century. He tracked, one of the things, he shared his faith uh, as missionaries do, but one of the extra things that he did is he tracked the development of Christianity in China under communist rule. And he believed through his research, that the intense suffering of the church in China during the second half of the 20th century, he died in 2004, produced character in the Chinese Christians that made them more winsome in their witness to others. Chow says that this is why the Christians in China exploded, the, the population of Christians in China exploded after 1949 when the communists began to rule. The Christian population, they're different numbers, but it went from three or four million at the most, perhaps in 1949, to nearly 50 million, perhaps, just a handful of decades later, but certainly in the tens of millions. And Chow attributes this to the suffering that produced character in the Chinese church. Chow, Chow tells the story of an American student who came to Hong Kong to study the, the Chinese church alongside Chow. Before the student had left the States, a friend of his had asked him, if God loves the, the Chinese church so much, why did he allow 
so much suffering to come upon it. And the student had no answer at the time, but after he had traveled to China and witnessed what God was doing among the Christians there, even through their suffering, he came up with an answer. And so before heading back to the States, he met with, with, uh, with Chow, and he told him, Mr. Chow, I'm going back to America to ask my friend this question. If God loves the American church so much, why hasn't he allowed us to suffer like the church in China? Now, obviously, there's some tension in, in that, some healthy tension, though. As Christians, we don't go looking for trials or requesting God to send us more suffering. But we also don't, don't run away from suffering if God leads us to it and through it. Suffering doesn't injure us spiritually. On the contrary, Paul says it accomplishes the spiritual purposes of God, who works everything for our good if we love him. Verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. Probably a better translation I, I probably should have gone with is hope does not shame us or put us to shame. That's what's going on there. It's talking about the eschatological judgment. On judgment day, we're not going to be shamed. You could say we're not going to be disappointed either. But we're not going to be shamed in front of the cosmos because we put our hope in, this, in Jesus, in this gospel, and, and had the blessed hope. And this hope does not disappoint or put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I've always loved that image of the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into my heart. You know, I, I imagine like something like this going on. You know, it's just, it's happening. It's being poured, filling up my heart. When you consider that God himself is love, the, the picture becomes one of God pouring himself into your heart. That's how we need to think about the grace of God. Is it's, it's God himself. When God gives us his grace, he's giving us himself. When he gives us his love, when he pours his love into our hearts, he's pouring himself into our hearts. And, and so I, I don't want you to miss the the personalism here not only in this verse but also in the whole paragraph this isn't dry theology theoretical theology it's practical theology the god who declares you to be righteous in christ is a god the god who wants a personal relationship with you he wants to be at peace with you personally he enjoys being at peace with you personally he, he wants you to take advantage of the personal access that you have to his throne of grace. He wants to satisfy your particular needs, to meet them in your time of need with his grace. He doesn't enjoy afflicting you, but he does enjoy working everything out for your personal good. And he will enjoy bringing your afflictions to an absolute end. And he will one day wipe every last tear from your eye with delight. This God has poured himself and his love 
into you, into your heart. As we, as we conclude, I want you to consider how God has used your trials to produce hope in you. And I want you to, in your, this is an exercise, I want you to get specific. So it's, it's kind of a, a case study, maybe, for, for you here at the end of the sermon. Think of a trial, a specific time of suffering, specifically that you've experienced as a believer since you've come to Christ. Many, many of you can use something that, that you're going through right now, right? Think about a trial that you remember well, and usually we do remember those well, and ask yourself three questions. Each, each question is a series of questions. Number one, did this time of emotional pain lead you to a single-mindedness? Did it, did it bring spiritual focus? Did it help you identify what's important and, and what you need to sift out as, because it's unimportant in your life? At the end of the trial, were you more dependent on God in prayer and more aware of his presence and provision? Number two, did your suffering produce character? Testedness. Are you more tried and true now? Did it produce in you the maturity and confidence of someone who has been through it all? Are you less fearful, less nervous, and more restful because of the trial? Do you entrust yourself to God more now? Number three, did your difficulty drive you to God or away from God? Did it drive you to a deeper relationship with your creator and your savior? Did it produce deeper personal experience of God's peace, God's presence, God's grace, God's love, deeper spiritual discernment, a deeper knowledge of God. Do you know God better because of that affliction? Are you closer to him than you were before? Most of us are going to have mixed answers to that, right? But if you can say yes to these questions, it's because you've learned how to look at your trials and suffering, it, it, you've, you've learned how to look at them and, and interpret them as pathways to God, pathways to the throne of grace. You've come to see your afflictions as windows into the blessed hope to come, the hope of glory. You've learned that God is not far off. He's not far off during your pain, but closer than ever. That's what you will have learned. So may God continue to draw you closer to himself and closer to glory as you entrust yourself to him and his providence. Let's pray. Oh God, give us a deeper longing for our hope, the hope of glory, the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of the Son of God. We ask it in his name.
the name of Jesus. Amen.